A man and a woman say to each other, this ring I give to you is a token and pledge of my constant faith and abiding love in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And a marriage is born. A father and a mother hold a little baby in their arms and they say, we will raise this child in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And a family in Christ is born. A group of men sign a piece of paper, the Declaration of the Independence, and they end it with these words, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortune, and our sacred honor. And a nation is born. A witness puts their hand on the Bible. A business person puts their name on a contract. A friend vows to another friend that they will keep their confidence in secret. This is the truth about us. We are promise-making people as marriages and families, friendships and businesses, churches and nations are all built on promises. Now, well, the truth about us is that we are all promise-making people. There's another truth about us, isn't it? And that is that at times we are promise breakers. We say, I'll be there, and sometimes we're not. We say, you can count on me, and sometimes you can't. We pledge our sacred honor, but sometimes in our frailty and in our sin and our human nature, we toss it aside for the sake of convenience or to avoid pain. You know, I, I have found that children very early on learn that people can be promise breakers, and, and that's why they try to find ways for us as the big people to honor our commitments. For example, if an offer gets made that they're not sure is going to get followed through on, what do they say? They, they say promise? Yeah, promise? They want to make sure the adults keep their word. But, but if that's not enough, what do they do? They start to attach riders to it, don't they? They say things like, cross your heart. Yeah. And if that's not enough, they say, cross your heart and what? Hope to die. That's right. And you'd think that would be enough because that's a pretty serious consequence to die, but, but sometimes it's not enough. And so they'll extend it, won't they? They say, cross your heart, hope to die, what? Stick a needle in your eye. That's a gruesome picture, isn't it? Huh? You know, I think if the Declaration of Independence had been written by little kids, the last phrase would have said, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortune, and our sacred honor. Cross our heart and hope to die, stick a needle in our eye, you know? In other words, we'll honor our word. We'll keep the promises that we make to each other. Now, now this kind of uh, vow, this kind of sacred mutual pledge between two people or two parties who are in relationship are, are what we saw last week, uh, what the Bible calls a covenant. And it's what Malachi talks about in chapter 2 of this little book at the end of the Old Testament. And last week we looked at the first 10 verses of chapter 2 and, and we saw... Uh, what Malachi was saying. Malachi, this guy whose name literally means in Hebrew, God's messenger, my messenger. And, and he once again, last week, as we saw, talked about God's people living with God's standards of excellence as we live our life here on earth. A couple of weeks ago in chapter one, we learned what it means to live by God's standards when we worship him, when we give him our devotion. We talked about living a life of giving God our best spiritually by being totally committed to God, by, by giving him our sincere affection, by, by giving to him the best of our talents and our abilities and our time rather than giving to him the leftovers, the scraps, the bones that, uh, of our commitment, of our affection, of our abilities. 
And then last week at the beginning of chapter 2, we saw how Malachi began, began to address God's standards when it comes to our relationship with other people. And we talked about our relationship with our children and our grandchildren. And we talked about our relationship as spiritual aunts and uncles uh, to the children in our church and in our community. And we talked about our friendships. And once again, we saw that God's standards are pretty high, aren't they? He wants you and me to be promise-keeping people because at the heart of relational excellence is not just promise-making, but it's also promise-keeping. In other words, it's, it's honoring our word. It's honoring the covenants we make with others. Those sacred vows, those solemn pledges, those declarations that we make from our heart and our soul. And Malachi is saying to us that relational excellence happens when you and I keep our word, when you and I honor our commitments and we are faithful to our trust with others, when we do that just as God has done that with us. As God's people, you see, he says we're to be like God. We're to be faithful in the relationships that we have with others. Well, this morning we come to a part of Malachi where he in chapter 2, addresses another relationship in our life. And, and that's the marriage relationship. And again, as we've been saying all along, in Malachi's day, people's commitments had been heading in the wrong direction. And once again, uh, this straight shooting prophet doesn't pull any punches when he talks about our commitment to marriage. And let's pick it up in verse 10, where we left it off last week. And Read again that core statement about relational excellence and keeping covenants that we make with others when Malachi says, are we not all children of the same father? Are we not all created by the same God? Then why are we faithless to each other, violating the covenant of our ancestors? Malachi's asking here, why is it that we profane the covenant that we have with others by, by breaking faith with them, by not keeping the commitments we've made with them? And then he goes on to talk about this relationship of marriage. And, and there's a word here for those who are single, and there's also a word here for those who are married. And I think the word for those who are single is this. He, he says in chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, In Judah, in Israel, and in Jerusalem, there is treachery. For the men of Judah have defiled the Lord's beloved sanctuary by marrying women who worship idols. May the Lord cut off from the nation of Israel every last man who's done this and yet brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. What's he saying here? Well, what he's saying here is that some of God's people are not marrying fellow believers, but they are marrying people who do not share their faith. And, and he says then they come into God's place of worship and they come thinking that God's going to be okay with them and that it can be business as usual and God's going to be pleased. But Malachi says God isn't pleased. He's not. And in fact, uh, he's saying a really strong word here about this. Now, now, what God's word is saying to us in this is that if we're not married, if you're one who's here today that's single and you're not married yet, if you're a follower of, of Christ, God wants you to marry a fellow believer. God wants you to marry someone who shares your faith. Marry a person, he's saying, who believes in Jesus, who, who's experienced God's grace and forgiveness of sin. Marry a person who is seeking to worship and honor God in their life. You know, I, I could spend the rest of our time this morning here telling you stories, both of people from my own family and, 
and, and people who I've rubbed shoulders with over 30 years of pastoral ministry who didn't follow God's word on this one. And what ended up happening for many of them is either they were dragged down spiritually because they had no support in that area of their life or they didn't have the fullness of joy in that marriage because they just weren't on the same page. They, they weren't in sync with their spouse, so to speak, uh, in this most important area of their life and their marriage, their relationship with God. And I could tell you of people who married a spouse thinking that they could lead them to faith in Christ. Around the church, we call it evangelistic or missionary dating or missionary marriage. And, and I got to say to you, anybody want to guess how that oftentimes turns out? God is saying here, if you are single and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, marry someone who shares your faith. And having said that, I know that in every church I've ever served, there are people who've done this, who, who've married a spouse that's not a believer. And, and maybe if you're here as one who's in that situation this morning, you're saying, well, well, what am I supposed to do now? What do I do with this spouse who, who does not share my faith? And, and, you know, God's word has some very wonderful and practical advice for you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 through 16, the apostle Paul says, now I'll speak to the rest of you, though I do not have a direct command from the Lord. If a Christian man has a wife who's an unbeliever and she is willing to continue living with him, he must not leave her. And if a Christian woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he is willing to continue living with her, she must not leave him. For the Christian wife, the Christian wife brings holiness to her marriage. And the Christian husband brings holiness to his marriage. Otherwise, your children would not have a godly influence. But now they are set apart for him. But if the husband or wife who isn't a Christian insists on leaving, let them go. Let them go, he says. In such cases, the Christian husband or wife is not required to stay with them. For God wants his children to live in peace. And then he goes on to say, you wives must remember that your husbands might be converted because of you. And you husbands must remember that your wives might be converted because of you. What this is saying is a word from God for anyone here this morning who, who finds himself in that situation and you are married to someone who doesn't share your faith. God says if they are willing to live with you, you live with them. And you be an example to them of God's love and God's grace and the forgiveness of God and the life-transforming work of the Holy Spirit in your own life. And do so for the sake of your children. And do so because you never know. You just might, through your witness and example, see your spouse come to faith in Christ. Now, after addressing this issue of marrying another believer... Malachi goes on to talk about this covenant of marriage, this promise that, that we make with our spouse that God wants us to keep. And, and listen to what he says here now in verses 13 through 16. He says, here's another thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, weeping and groaning because he pays no attention to your offerings and he doesn't accept them with pleasure. You cry out, why has the Lord abandoned us? I'll tell you why. 
Because the Lord witnessed the vows that you and your wife made to each other on your wedding day when you were young. But you've been disloyal to her, though she remained your faithful companion, the wife of your marriage vows. This is strong. I mean, God is saying here, hey, don't be under the illusion that your worship is acceptable to me, that that your prayers are acceptable to me, when the way that you are treating your spouse is unacceptable to me. I got to say, this is a, I mean, for me, it's a pretty sobering statement that, because God is saying, hey, if, if I break faith with Vanessa or if you break faith with your spouse, don't, don't bother coming to me with your wish list. And we God's saying, don't waste your breath. I mean, this is strong stuff. And then he goes on and he gets even stronger as he makes one of the strongest statements in the scripture when he says this. He says, didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? In body and spirit, you are his. And what does he want? Godly children from your union. So guard yourself, he says. Remain loyal to the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. It is as cruel as putting on a victim's blood-stained coat, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself and always remain loyal to your wife. What God's saying to us here through Malachi today? He's saying that when, when you and I got married, we didn't make a bargain. We, we didn't make a transaction. We, we made a covenant. We made a sacred vow. And a violation of that is a serious thing in God's eyes. You know, we live today in a Western American culture that, that has a, a, you know, where many people in our day view marriage somehow as a a transitional transaction that, that, hey, if you meet my needs and it stays sense for me to be married to you, I will. But but if you don't meet my needs or I outgrow you or I get a better offer someplace else, then I am free to leave. And into our culture, Malachi is speaking a word to us as God's people to say, don't be like the culture. The marriage covenant is a promise. It is a sacred vow. You know, I want to do something a little bit different than I do at times. And I want to read to you a little larger section of something. I don't oftentimes read from a book, but but, but I want to read to you a a portion of a book that was written some years ago. and, And it's the story of a marriage that was built on a promise. The couple's name is Robertson and Muriel McQuilkin, and Robinson was the president of Columbia International University from 1968 to 1990, and, and he writes about their marriage in a book, A Promise Kept, and, and he wrote this book over a period of time. They'd been married almost 40 years when he began writing it, and this is what he writes. He said, it's been a decade since that day in Florida when Muriel, my wife, repeated to the couple vacationing with us the story that she had just told five minutes earlier. Funny, I thought. That's never happened before, but it began to happen occasionally. Then he writes about her long, slow descent into Alzheimer's disease, and, and he reflects as a husband on how his life changed. And this is what he says, She is such a delight to me. I don't have to care for her. I get to. 
One blessing is the way she's teaching me so much about love. For example, God's love. She picks flowers outside, anyone's flowers, and fills the house with them. And lately, she's begun to pick them inside, too. Someone had given us a beautiful Easter lily, two stems with four or five lilies on each and more to come. And one day I came into the kitchen and there was on the windowsill a vase with a stem of lilies in it. I've learned to go with the flow and not correct the irrational behavior. She means no harm and does not understand what should be done, nor would she remember a rebuke. Nevertheless, that day I did the irrational. I told her how disappointed I was, how the lilies would soon die, the buds would never bloom, and please do not break off the other stem. The next day, our youngest son, soon to leave for India, came for his next-to-last visit. I told Ken of my rebuke for his mother the day before and how badly I felt about it. As we sat in the porch swing, savoring each moment together, his mother came to the door with a gift of love for me. (laughs) She carefully laid the other stem of lilies on the table, and with a gentle smile, she turned back into the house. I simply said, thank you. (laughs) Ken said, you're doing better, Dad. (laughs) Later he writes, Muriel cannot speak in sentences now, only in phrases. And words, and often words that make little sense, know when she means yes, for example. She can only say one sentence, but she says it often. I love you. And she not only says it, but she acts it. The board at the college where I serve as president arranged for a companion to stay in our home so I could go to the office. During those two years, it had become increasingly difficult to keep Muriel home. As soon as I left, she would take out after me, With me, she was content. Without me, she was distressed. The walk to school is a mile round trip. And she would make that trip as many as ten times a day. Sometimes at night when I helped her undress, I found bloody feet. (laughs) When I told our family doctor, he choked up. Such love, he said simply. Then he said, I have a theory that the characteristics developed across the years come out at times like these. I wish I loved God like that. Desperate to be near him at all times. Thus, Robertson writes, she teaches me day by day. My friends wonder how I am coping as they reflect on how the alleged indispensable characteristics of a good marriage have all slipped away one by one. I came across the common contemporary wisdom in a letter to a national newspaper columnist. The person wrote, I ended the relationship because it wasn't meeting my needs. And he went on to talk about having needs for communication, understanding, affirmation, common interests, sexual fulfillment. The list went on. And he was leaving his spouse because his needs weren't being met. The columnist offered no alternative. I reflected on the eerie irrelevance of every one of those criteria for me. As Muriel needed more and more of me, I wrestled daily with the question of who gets me full-time, the college or Muriel? Our doctor advised me not to make any decision based on my desire to see Muriel stay content. Make your plans apart from that question, he said. Whether or not you can be successful in your dreams for the college, I cannot judge. But I can tell you now that you will not be successful. 
with Muriel. When the time came, the decision was firm. It took no great calculations. Had I not promised? Had I not promised 42 years before in sickness and in health till death do us part? I've been startled, he writes, by the response to the announcement of my resignation. Husbands and wives renew their vows. Pastors tell the story to their congregations. It was a mystery to me until a distinguished oncologist who lives constantly with dying people told me, very few women stand by their men and very few men stand by their women. It is more than keeping promises and being fair, though, he writes. As I watch her brave descent into oblivion, Muriel is the joy of my life. Daily I discern new manifestations of the kind of person she is. The wife I always loved. And daily I see manifestations of God's love. The God I long to love more fully. You know, you and I who are married here today made a promise. And we wear a ring today that is a sign of that covenant that we made with our spouse. I want to ask you for a moment this morning that if you are wearing a wedding ring, would you, would you look down at that ring as I am looking at mine and ask yourself the question, how is your promise going? How is my promise going? You see, you and I said that we would offer ourselves in self-giving love for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health until one of us passes away. You promised. I promised. And what these vows mean is that we promise to submit ourselves and to serve one another and to share our life with each other. We promise that we would laugh together and we would cry together. We promise that when we would fight, we would fight fair and we would fight clean and we would make it through to the other side by reconciling with each other. We promise that our love would see deeper than, you know, receding hairlines, <laughs> bulging waistlines or, or when the skin under her arm starts to get loose and Flap around, you know. <laughs> we didn't say, I promise to do these things if you behave well. If you stay attractive to me, if you live up to my standards. We made a vow. How are you doing on your vow? How am I doing on my vow? You know, I want to invite every couple in this room this morning who is married to to sit down this week at some point and ask each other, how's our promise going? How am I doing? Are there any areas in my life where, and in our relationship where I'm close to breaking faith with you? Several years ago, there was a couple in a church where I served who came to me and said, David, our marriage is done. They'd already called the attorneys. They had already filed the divorce paper. Their emotions were cold. Their lives were separate. Their hearts were world apart, worlds apart. But, but they remembered in the midst of that that they made a promise. And so they agreed to try again. And they went and got help 
in a ministry of marital restoration and they got wise counsel and they began to talk and their hearts began to melt and they did the ceremony again because you see they began to have a deeper understanding of how it goes how's your promise going you know as i think about my own marriage and how i made that promise over 32 years ago I realize that while I've never taken the big exit, I've taken a lot of little exits along the way. There were times in those early years of our marriage when I broke faith with Vanessa by getting involved in pornography. There have been moments when I have withdrawn when I should have engaged. There have been moments and days when I've gotten cold and unloving. And what God wanted me to do is to connect with her and be more patient and kind. I got to tell you, I am growing in my relationship with God through the years. And as I am, I am learning to keep my promise and honor my vows. And I want to say to you today, Vanessa is the love of my life. And I say it more and more all the time. I am more blessed than I deserve. Friends, if you and I want relational excellence, we've got to be living up to the standards that God sets. And so I encourage all of us to go home this week and have a conversation with our spouse and ask, how is our promise going? How am I doing? Are there areas where I'm close to breaking faith with you? And if you find that there are, then take the steps to deal with it. Before we close this morning, I want to say a word to some of you who are in a different situation. I want to say a word to those of you who find your spouse is divorcing you or, or whose marriage has ended in divorce. I want to offer a word of grace and redemption for you today. Because what is it that you do when your covenant of marriage has been broken? Some of you are there as maybe your marriage has ended. Maybe you've had a, a spouse who's been unfaithful or abusive. Maybe you have a spouse who's walked away from you and, and refuses to change or refuses to engage. You've got to know that sometimes there's just no alternative. Jesus recognizes that. He talks about that in Matthew 19. The Bible talks about that in other places. Sometimes there just is no alternative. Or maybe there has been misbehavior on your part or maybe for whatever reason, rebuilding the marriage relationship is no longer possible. I think you need to hear this today. Hear this now because God is saying, I hate divorce. But God does not say, I hate divorced people. He does not say, I hate divorced people. The Bible, you see, does not separate the human race into two categories. Good, respectable, non-divorced people or Bad divorced people. The Bible simply says that every one of us is sin. Every one of us falls short of the glory of God. And all of us need God's grace and forgiveness. And we need God's redemption. And so I want to say to you today, if you're one who's here that's experienced a broken marital covenant, God extends to you his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness. And it's important that you receive that and you hear that, and if you need to, to forgive also yourself, 
because God forgives you. But you know, I think it's also important for you to hear something else about the application that Malachi is saying to us in all of this, and that it is important for you also as you experience God's grace to reset the standards of excellence in your relationship. Sometimes I have watched people go through the pain of a broken covenant, the pain of divorce, and they never reset the standards. And I've watched folks who grind through one relationship after another and engage in a life of serial covenant breaking. Malachi's saying is God's people don't do that. Be different from the world. Stop and reset the bar. And say before God, God, I value and I honor the promises I make. And I will learn from my past and I will take time to get clarity on what went wrong with a counselor. And I will make reparations wherever those are possible for me to make. And I will learn how I need to change. And I will continue to grow in that change. And I'll grow in that change by being involved in a community that provides accountability for me. Like a, a life group. Or, or like one of the Reflect Women's Ministries mentoring group. Or, or one of the Iron Men's Ministries small groups. Or, or one of the Every Man a Warrior group. And, and you'll say, God, I will do whatever I need to do to live life in the future as a covenant keeper. Friends, I, I hope you'll experience grace. But I hope you will also make the effort to reset the bar. We've heard from Malachi last week and today that, that being in covenant with others, being promise-making and promise-keeping people is, real, is a real serious deal to God. And that is why Malachi ends this part of his message on relationships with these words. The end of verse 16, he says, Guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. And that is also why Malachi goes on to encourage us to let God continuing to do his, his purifying work in our life so that our life and our relationships will be marked by, by a life and by relationships of covenant keeping rather than being covenant breakers who experience the consequences of that and who experience God's judgment about that. We don't have time this morning to read the rest of chapter 2 and the first five verses of chapter 3. And so I put a note there at the end of the message notes. So you can go home and, and you can read that. And, and you can see what God says about, about living pure lives. But, but as we think about that, and as we think about all that we've heard last week and this week, I want to say to us again, as I said last week, can you imagine if everyone around here as God's people became first-class covenant keepers? Can we imagine marriages where every spouse was, was committed to offering faithful love to each other each day? Can we imagine, as we said last week, what, what kind of children we would raise if, if every parent, day in and day out, was a covenant-keeping mom, a covenant-keeping dad, and, and if every spiritual aunt and uncle in our church family, day in and day out, were covenant-keeping spiritual aunts and uncles? Can we imagine how deep our relationships with others would be if in our friendships we mark those friendships with truth and love and care and loyalty and faith? Can we imagine how God would be honored 
if here in the community of Salina, it became common knowledge that when you deal with a Christ follower, all you need is their word. If Malachi was here today, he would say to you and to me at the close of these couple messages on relationships, will you and I dare to let God set the standard? in our relational life? Will you and I become excellent covenant keepers? Will you? Will I? Let's bow our hearts and heads in closing prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are so grateful as we saw last week, that you are a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God in your relationship with us. You never walk away from us. But you love us and you offer us your grace and forgiveness. God, as we recognize that, we ask today that you would help every one of us here who has fallen short of your glory, who has sinned and and who's aware of the ways that we have broken faith in our life with you and others we're in relationship with. Lord, would you help us to do that healing work that needs to be done. Help us to have the courage and the character to do it. And God, as we heal, as we receive your grace and forgiveness for the ways that we have blown it in the past, we pray that through the power of your Holy, Holy Spirit, as we live into the future, you would help us to be people who honor our relationships with others in the way you do with us. That you would help us to live according to the standards that you have set. God, we ask this today in the name of Jesus Christ. And through the power of your Holy Spirit who lives within us as your people. And all God's people in agreement this morning said.